So welcome back, everyone. And I'd also like to wa welcome uh, people watching on live stream. One of the things we're able to do in this beautiful new building is much more online uh, offerings. And so Monday night, I think, is regularly going to be shared online. So hopefully there are people watching. Hello. And welcome to you, too. So I've been reflecting recently about how challenging life is. Um, and this was even when things were going relatively well. I was reflecting on this. But this is, of course, not news. The Buddha talked about this 2,600 years ago when he said, uh, it talked about the first noble truth, which basically says there is suffering in life. If you have a mind and a body, the nature is that there will be suffering. And so this is true for us, for all of us. There's always stress and illness and loss and grief health challenges for ourselves, for our loved ones, our families, and then spread wider to the community. And of course, we receive information all the time about all of the difficulties that are going on in this world. It's heartbreaking on all kinds of levels. The refugee crisis in so many countries, not just in Syria, but uh, countries throughout Africa, um, all of the, the states of war, the injustice in the world. This is the first noble truth. If you're a Democrat, the recent elections brought another form of suffering, um, very challenging, and brought this truth into focus. Life is unreliable. We don't always get what we want. I'm at the moment reading this great book called The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World, and it's conversations between His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. They, they um, meet in uh, McLeod Gunge, the Dalai Lama's home just near Dharamsala, and it's moderated by Douglas Abrams. And the theme of the book is how those two men have remained joyful and optimistic given everything they faced in the world, with Desmond Tutu through apartheid and all of the challenges that that brought both during and after um, apartheid, Dalai Lama losing his country, being basically a refugee living in India, the huge uh, genocide that's happening in Tibet. And they come together, and there's so much joy and laughter and optimism. It's, it's really um, uh, uplifting, and it's a great read for these times if you feel you need that, and I think we nearly always do. And so Archbishop Desmond Tutu says, discovering more joy does not, I'm sorry to say, save us from the inevitability of hardship and heartbreak. In fact, we cry more easily but we will laugh more easily too. Perhaps we are just more alive. Yet as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreak without being broken. These are wise words, and when he uses the language, face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters, that's the teaching of the first noble truth. Why is the first noble truth about suffering? Why is suffering noble? It's noble if it causes us to turn and face and understand 
the suffering in a way that leads to a lessening of suffering, to in fact greater happiness and contentment, and that's what he's pointing to. But this is our challenge. How do we live in an imperfect world? This is what I've been contemplating. In Buddhism, we call this realm, the human realm, samsara. It's the word for it. And it refers, technically, you could say, to this cycle of birth and death, is the, the view that, that we go through countless, endless rounds of life and death in all of these different realms. And that's uh, one of the definitions of the First Noble Truth of dukkha. Uh, the Pali word for suffering is, is dukkha. But even if you don't believe in that kind of cosmology, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the challenges of being alive, of being human. And then I recently heard that, that one of the ways Tibetan Buddhists define samsara, this cyclic realm, this constant round of challenge that we live in, that samsara is imperfect and unfixable imperfect and unfixable. It's unfixable because its nature is what we call the, th the three characteristics or the three marks of existence. That it's impermanent, anicca, always changing, never static, never stable. Its very nature is inherently unsatisfying because of that, a lot because of that change. And that we're not in control in the way we would like to think we are. This is, these are the very called characteristics of existence. So that explains why it's unfixable, because that's the nature of this existence, these three characteristics. In some ways, this can seem a little daunting, but it can also feel like a relief, because we always think we should be able to fix it. But to hear that it's actually unfixable, it's like, oh, that makes sense. But I've also heard in Tibetan Buddhism there's another definition of samsara, and that is the urge to correct or to fix. So on one hand, you have samsara. This existence is unfixable. On the other hand, this constant urge, this impulse to fix. What do you think happens when you put those two realities together? This is our experience, right? Suffering, frustration, resentment, anxiety, stress, because we're trying to fix what is inherently unfixable. And we try to do that because we don't understand what we call the Dhamma, the way things are, reality. This is a definition of Dhamma. Um, another definition is the teachings of the Buddha, but simply it just means the truth, the way things are, reality. And we see that so many of us, so many people are trying to find happiness and yet doing exactly what brings unhappiness, what brings suffering. This is the very definition of ignorance or delusion, which is the fun most fundamental cause of suffering in the Buddha's teachings, ignorance or, or delusion. So the Buddha's teaching is about waking up, waking up to these truths and seeing clearly. Some people are saying that these recent events, the election, is actually, there's some good news in it, in that it is waking us up. If we were living in any kind of bubble, if there was any kind of complacency, it's been shattered, right? 
it, we can't just rely on other people to take care of things that have some sense that there was a, a general momentum that things were getting better, you know. There were signs that a lot was getting better. There was more equality, marriage equality, different forms of social justice. There's definitely truth to that. And there were still huge amounts of injustice, especially for our people of color friends who were you know, being unfairly targeted in the judicial system and by police and in all kinds of uh, ways. Climate change. You know, people were doing very good work there, and it's a huge challenge. We, now we realize there's no one out there taking care. We all need to step up and do what we can to work for equality and justice and all of these things that we value. A little while ago, I read an interview in the Tricycle magazine. That's a Buddhist magazine. Um, from a, a, a series called Black Coffee Buddhism. And it's a dialogue with Charles Johnson, who's an African-American professor emeritus at the University of Washington. I don't know him personally, but he sounds like kind of an amazing guy. He's a philosopher, a novelist, an essayist, and a cartoonist. So kind of a Renaissance kind of guy. He's also a Zen practitioner and a teacher, so he brings to all of that, uh, a Dharma perspective or Dharma understanding. And so he, he was talking a lot about his Dharma community in this piece, but the words could apply to the larger community as well. He said, the Sangha, and that's a word for our Dharma community, our fellow like-minded people, the Sangha is a collection of human beings situated in a very imperfect social world and in history. Human beings are flawed, frequently imperfect in their spiritual practice, and so they can slip into error or do things that violate their vows or ideals. And what he's talking about is even as we have the best of intentions, we can do things that cause suffering to ourselves, even to people we love, let alone to the broader community. So the challenge for us is how do we wake up and not cause so much suffering? There is going to be suffering. As I said, that's the first noble truth. But this is our challenge as practitioners. How do we do this? One of the ways, and there are many ways the Buddha talked about reducing suffering, but one of the ways he talked about is to reduce ignorance. I said that's one of the fundamental causes of suffering, ignorance or delusion, is to explore what he called our perceptions. In Pali, which is the language these teachings um, came down to us in, the word is sanya, and it's one of the five aggregates. And the challenge with any Buddhist teaching is you start getting into a lot of lists, each one of which is kind of a rabbit hole that you could go down and expand on. I'm not going to go there with the aggregates, but it's one of the ways the Buddha encouraged us to focus on, look in our experience, because we tend to cling and identify to these aggregates. And so we cling and identify to this mental functioning of perception. The way we use the term in Buddhism, perception is the naming or the recognizing, the, the um, categorizing of experience, of things, of objects, of reality. In some ways, that seems um, 
pretty benign, but it's actually a powerful um, thing that we do because our perceptions are often distorted. We think we're seeing the world clearly, but it's through a lot of conditioning that we often don't recognize is happening. And so out of memory, out of our previous experiences, we put these labels on the world, on things, on people, on objects, on experiences, and we compartmentalize them. Um, and one big distortion of perception we can have is that samsara should be fixed, and I should be the one that fix it, fixes it. And that can bring a huge amount of suffering if we're operating out of that kind of belief all the time. It can lead to what one psychiatrist calls the addiction of our times, self-righteous indignation. You know, things shouldn't be this way. This is wrong and this is bad and someone or something or me or someone else is to blame for this situation. This is a particular mind state that's different from responding to suffering with compassion and appropriate action. So when I talk about fixing, it's this particular narrow way of relating to experience, as I said, that has this finger-wagging uh, energy to it, as I said, that, that says that something's wrong and should be fixed. Acting out of wisdom and compassion is appropriate. Again, from this book, Desmond Tutu says, righteous anger. He talks about righteous anger, which is very different from fixing. Righteous anger is usually not about oneself. It is about those whom one sees being harmed and whom one wants to help. And the Adams, the moderator, says, righteous anger is a tool of justice, a scythe of compassion, more than a reactive emotion. So that can be a wise response. We're not talking about not having strong responses, but seeing how this fixing mentality starts from a belief that things are bad or wrong and someone is to blame. Someone should be um, fixing this. We think that the way we're perceiving the world is the absolute truth and that anyone who sees differently is deluded, is not seeing accurately. Meditation invites us to examine these thoughts and to realize that they may have a reality, a kind of reality, but we can't know that they're the absolute reality because often, most of the time, I dare say a lot of the time, they're conditioned by ignorance. If you start with a flawed system, that's probably what's going to happen. So we practice meditation, starting as we did tonight with this simple um, connecting with the, the, with the body, with the breath, so we can understand the mind and see it more clearly, see the way these thoughts and patterns and conditioning work, so we can have more of a sense of truth, of reality, of clarity, closer to the actual experience rather than the distortion that is often happening. And mindfulness is a great tool to enliven us in these ways, to be aware of what's called implicit bias, this, this way of seeing that's so closely held that we don't even see that we're seeing through it. We can bring mindfulness to that experience 
and actually begin to wake up to it, to, to see through it. And so the power of mindfulness, as we uh, connect more deeply and, and regularly with the current moment experience, what's happening is it brings what we call this choice point where we are aware of the thoughts, the moods, the reactions, whatever happening, but we see it with some clarity. And there's that possibility, how do we react then? What is a wise response to this experience, to this conversation, to this emotion? Pema Chodron has a book called Practicing Peace in Times of War. I think it's been out for a few years, but relevant for now. She says, when you open yourself to the continually changing, impermanent dynamic nature of your own being and of reality, you increase your capacity to love and care about other people and your capacity to not be afraid. You're able to keep your eyes open, your heart open, and your mind open. And you notice when you get caught up in prejudice, bias, and aggression, you develop an enthusiasm for no longer watering those negative seeds from now until the day you die. And you begin to think of your life as offering endless opportunities to start to do things differently. These are wise but in some ways radical words. This opportunity we always have to bring a wise response to the situation and perhaps to see or even do things differently. So the appropriate response, the wise response, this is the possibility of our practice. Just a, a kind of silly story to be an example of this. As you know, Spirit Rock has this beautiful land, about 400 acres. Most of it is very uh, hilly, straight up the hill here. And we have a fence line down this side, the eastern side, that borders our neighbor who has a ranch of about 600 acres where they run cows. And every now and then, the cows get through the fence and they come over to our side. You know, their side is, grass is all eaten. The grass is definitely greener on our side of the fence, so they break through. And I was speaking to John, the farmer, he's a neighbor and a friend uh, a little while ago, and he was telling me this story about one time when the cows got through the fence. So he and his son came through onto our land looking for the cows. Cows are pretty big, right? But you know, 400 acres, hard to find. So they came across some people way at the top, you know, there's a ridge line up there. And they're obviously spirit rock meditators, but so they said to them, have you seen any cows? And they, John said these people looked at him with a blank expression and just kept walking. <laughs> now he was at first a little bemused by this, but luckily he knows that Spirit Rock, what we do here in silence. But I had to explain to him these people were taking the instruction on noble silence too far. Noble silence doesn't mean you don't speak. It just means you don't speak inappropriately. A wise response would be if someone says, have you seen any cows? You say yes or no, depending on what your experience is. It's not so helpful if someone's looking for cows that you refuse to give them the information that they need. So 
Again, if you're ever on retreat here and someone asks you that question, please feel free to respond. Uh, you don't have to, you know, it doesn't mean you're not speaking. So the wise response is what's needed in the situation? What is asked of me in this? And so perceptions are really an important part of that process. Operating all the time, most of the time we're not aware of the impact that they're having. So as I said, perceptions are this naming, identifying, and categorizing of experience. What we have to know is that this, this functioning is conditioned as in it's learned, and it shapes how we relate to the thing we're experiencing. As the Talmud says, this book of Jewish wisdom, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are, meaning we're seeing all the time through the filters of our conditioning. And so there's some truth, of course. We have some sense of a shared reality. But so often there's a gross or subtle distortion. And what can also happen is we think we know something. We, we say, oh, that's that person, that experience, that object. And we put it in a box, and we don't think about it in an engaged way after that. We know that. We know who, what that person, that kind of person is like. This is, again, part of the work of meditation, bringing mindfulness to this process and realizing its functioning and how much it's impacting our experience. The Buddha loved to explore how the mind worked in this way. He says one of the things that perception feeds is a type of thinking he called papancha. And I love this word because it's very onomatopoeic, it kind of papancha, it sounds almost Italian, you know, it's like very uh, evocative. Because papancha means proliferation, diffusion, or elaboration of thinking. It's a kind of um, thinking on steroids, you could say. It's not just, you know, simple thought, I've got to go shopping and buy this and that. It's that kind of sandcastles in the mind kind of thinking. I heard about this term and this functioning of mind years ago, and I used to think of it as kind of harmless, a bit like daydreaming, just kind of floating in a bit of a fantasy world, you know, a waste of time, but not that impactful. But as I've thought about it and read more of what the Buddha says about it, I realize it actually has a big impact and can be very damaging. One of um, uh, the uh, scholars and um, translators of our text, Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who is a monk who lives in San Diego, he translates papancha rather than proliferation, which is the word that's commonly used to try, so it gives that sense of sort of elaborate thinking. He likes objectification um, because it talks, it, it more points to how we solidify things through this kind of thinking. You could also translate it as conceptualization or reification. It's this movement of mind that takes an initial thought, spins it out, and then makes it real and true. And what happens is we start to invest in this kind of thinking. It creates a feedback loop, and we end up on this roller coaster of thoughts and emotions that we're more and more invested in more and more identified in, and more and more responding to our own thoughts and feelings. 
there's not any real, reality check from outside. So this is why papancha can um, become quite problematic. We make up these worlds in our minds and we believe in them. So it's said that um, papancha is the cause of many difficult mind states and external problems. See if you can see this operating in our world today. Papancha is a source of greed, views, pride, ignorance, and attachment to identities. See any of this happening in the world today? Source of quarreling, slander, and lying. Actually, all forms of conflict can come out of this kind of thinking, projections and belief, all get reified, solidified by this kind of thinking, often divorced from, as I said, a, a reality check of what's actually happening. Because we're not often um, encouraged to question our thoughts and feelings. We have the kind of thing, oh, I think it, therefore it must be true. I feel it, therefore it must be true. Not to deny validity of thoughts and feelings, but we have to understand how much they're conditioned and how much they're often conditioned by fundamental forms of delusion or um, confusion. And so this kind of thinking leads to, again, what the Buddha called these three uh, types of unwholesome mind states, craving, Pali, it's tanha, source of the first, the source of suffering, conceit, or mana, and this is the comparing mind, better than, worse than, even the same as, and views and opinions, or ditti. So again, papancha, this kind of thinking, can lead to all of these kind of challenging and separating experiences, lead to a lot of problems. And so very intertwined. If we're not aware that we're fueling this kind of thinking, we often end up in one of those three states of craving, um, conceit, comparing, and views and opinions. So the pushing away, the craving. And when in Buddhism we talk about craving, it includes the flip side of aversion, the pushing and the pulling, the not the not liking, the aversion of experience, the judging, the comparing, you know, better than, worse than, I'm better than this kind of people or those people, I'm worse than, I'm not okay. Um, this is the story we often tell ourselves about and it fuels our worldview, this kind of judging. Again, back to Charles Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, he said, because most people live in samsara, the realm of ignorance and delusion, they will experience the world in terms of their fragile ego. Now, the ego wants to maintain its existence. It identifies with the physical body, with its sense of race and gender, and with its endless desires. Furthermore, the ego is always measuring itself against others because such measuring is how it survives and avoids what it perceives to be dangerous or a threat to its continuation. It is forever wondering if it is inferior, equal, or superior to others. Always wondering, is mine bigger than yours? Obviously, it prefers to feel bigger, superior to, and better than others, smarter, more beautiful, wealthier, more gifted, more ethical, and so on. This is what this kind of thinking 
and our investment in ego leads us to is comparing and judging and always wanting to be better than, to, to be greater than. And then, of course, views and opinions. We just see how much these are fueled by this kind of thinking and how divisive when people hold on to this is right and all other views are wrong. And so the Buddha said we need to be aware of this functioning of mind because it is so painful and ultimately harmful to ourselves, to our own well-being, and to others because it creates this sense of separation and conflict. So we actually train ourselves to be aware of the mind. Meditation is the work of the mind. We use the body. The first foundation of mindfulness is the body, the breath. So we started with the meditation this morning, uh, this morning just a little while ago. Um, but we ultimately, and Im most importantly, work with the mind and train the mind. We start to see thoughts for what they are. As I said during the meditation, it's not that we need to or want to stop thinking, mm -hmm. but we want to develop a different relationship to thoughts where they don't run the show because they are so often unreliable and so often send us spinning into places of suffering of aversion, of desire, of, of craving. So, and we start to see thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. And you may have noticed this already in your meditation. If you're not mindful, not trying to meditate, thoughts run the show. They create our reality. If you're mindful, if you're meditating, and you can notice a thought, what often happens? It's like a fog, a bubble, a dandelion that you just blow and it just collapses. This is huge for us to see that we can shift our relationship to thinking. This is the work of meditation. And so we start by recognizing that we're thinking, as I said earlier, gently bringing the attention back. We can ultimately actually be mindful of thoughts, name them be aware of the impact that they're having, planning, remembering, rehearsing, seeing Melinda, arguing with my boss, you know, wanting to buy something, whatever it is, we can actually name the thoughts. Any thought that has some kind of weight generates an emotional response, a physical response. It doesn't have to be a clear emotion that we track, but we just shift the attention from the thought into the body, and we start to be aware of what's happening. I don't know if you can detect, I moved here in 1988, so I've been here for a long time, but people still think I have an accent. I'm Australian. When I go to Australia, they think I'm American, um, because now I've picked up somewhat this accent, but anyway, I do come from Australia. So I have, still have family there. I go back regularly. And I started to notice a pattern of papancha. As a trip was becoming closer, I go every year or so, of, you know, as we often do, my thoughts would start to go to Australia, to the people I would see there, to the situations I would be in. And I would have imaginings about that. Um, you know, and sometimes it would be looking up old friends that I hadn't seen you know, since I left there in 1980. So it's been a long time since I've lived there. 
So these thoughts would come up. And I would start to notice that in all of the thoughts, I was healthier, wiser, and more compassionate than I actually am. You know, there would be this me that would be traveling to Australia, and the, 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 definitely the sense was, well, I hope they notice you know, that I'm not the person I was in high school or even the person of 10 years ago. You know, now I'm this and that. As I, you know, the, the more often this happened, and I also started to tell this story sometimes in Dhamma talks about this is papancha. This is where we create this reality where it actually doesn't bear that much relationship to what actually is going to happen. And now, as these trips come up, my mind still will do that. I will see it start playing out these scenarios of who I might see. And because I've named it so clearly, and it's amazing the power it has when you tell other people your stories, so quickly, I'm just aware, oh, that's papancha. That's just me creating some fantasy reality. In nearly all of them, I look good, you know. It's not, you don't, sometimes you tell the one where it's not so good, but most of the time in these kind of fantasies, you know, you're coming off pretty well, and it's like, it's just a fantasy. When I go there, I'm going to be who I am, and we all know, right, families are the place where However small our buttons are, they still get pressed, right? We may have reduced them, but they're still there. So we can be aware of this. Uh, with, those, with that kind of thinking, as I said, there usually is some kind of emotional response, some kind of leaning into the future. Often there's a sense of contraction, literally, physically in the body. The heart might beat a little faster. Some emotional response really could become aware of that, notice the effect it's happening. And just the shifting of the attention is so helpful. We're not feeding the thoughts so much. We start to reflect on why we tend to get lost in this kind of thinking. Someone I was speaking to, as she did this reflection, saw it was the illusion she was in control. Because again, in our mind fantasies, we're pulling all the, the levers and the buttons, right? We're moving the pieces on the jigsaw puzzle and, and having things work out the way we want them to. And it's an illusion. It's a fantasy land. And so we start to see how many of these planning, obsessive kind of thinkings come out of this need to control or fix that I was talking about earlier. And that their source is basically fear in all of its variations, worry, anxiety, stress, dissatisfaction. I read recently that you know feeling stressed or anxious is such a common experience. People often have a low-grade or chronic kind of stress or wor- stress and anxiety. And the urge, of ang- the, the urge out of anxiety is to do something, right, to calm. And that worry, even though it's just a mental proliferation, feels like doing something. So it's sort of a a satisfaction, even though we're not, you know, we're not actually doing anything concrete in that situation. And these kind of mind states come out of a basic lack of trust or confidence in ourselves and our capacity to meet and be with whatever challenging situation it is that we're envisioning. We're having to manipulate and plan and control and fix and worry. James Barras, one of our teachers here, a dear friend, often says, trust mindfulness can meet any moment. 
trust mindfulness can meet any moment. And it's true, but we have to be mindful for mindfulness to be able to meet any moment. So we need to cultivate mindfulness. And another teacher here, Brian Lesage, uh, another friend, says when he has this kind of thinking, and especially he was talking about where we're in contention with something, do I want to be right or do I want to be free? How often do you have that thought, if you ever have it, saying, no, I want to be right. I don't want to give up my uh, edge in this argument. But holding on to that, that causes suffering. That's not a source of freedom. Do I want to be right or do I want to be free? Someone a while ago gave me what I think is very good relationship advice. Works for intimate relationships, friendship relationships, particularly intimate relationships. Whoever is doing it is doing it right. And this means whoever's loading the dishwasher or putting out the recycling or folding the laundry or washing the car or whatever it is, if they've actually stepped up to do it, can we let them do it without interfering? This is a constant practice for me. Because, um, you know, we all have our ideas about how it is, but it, because I've reflected on it, it does come into my mind on a regular basis. Can I just let whoever is doing it just do it the way they're doing it and trust. It'll be done okay. So offer you that one. I find it very helpful. So as we work with this um, practice of watching our minds, and in, in Buddhism, the word for mind and heart is the same word, citta. So whenever I say mind, you could translate heart and vice versa, intimately connected. We really need to do it with compassion. This is not about finger wagging and saying, oh, bad, wrong, you've done it again, look where your mind went. But really to see that this is the tendency of mind that we've conditioned. It's a deeply human tendency. And we've trained our minds to work this way. It's responding to many previous suggestions that we've given it about how to navigate this difficult world. It's just doing what we've trained it to do. But now we're perhaps seeing that there are different possibilities that we could actually shift that tendency of mind. So really important, compassion, kindness, and even humor. To just laugh, I, sometimes I have to laugh at my mind and the dramatic turns it will take. I've even got a whole note I use, DQ, drama queen, you know, where the littlest thing can become some great emergency. It's like just the mind doing what it's trained to do. And it's a strong tendency. We have to really recognize that. It's un understandable that we'll get caught again and again. One of our uh, teachers and mentors, Ajahn Samedo, who's very wise, he'll often say, you have to know X to know non-X. So you have to know anger, that is understand anger, to know what non-anger actually feels like. So I would say the same. You have to know papancha, know this tendency of mind and how it works, to know what non-papancha is, to know what it's like when the mind is at ease is seen clearly, is in the moment, is present, is opening to the vastness of possibility there is here. So 
We have to know this mind, get familiar with it, not make it the enemy. And also, sometimes we need to use what we call the sword of wisdom that just says enough. Enough with this train of thought, enough with this obsession, enough with this loop that just keeps running that's actually making me fearful and contracted. We need to recognize that. So, you know, whether you use stronger language or you just say not now or not this or change the channel, literally change the channel, redirect the energy, get up, go for a walk, look out the window, pick up a book or something that's inspiring, just to actually recognize the mind doesn't have to keep obsessing in this way. So we start to actually look at this mind and how it works and know that we can. We can actually shift the attention. Instead of being out there trying to manipulate experience, start here, start at home, start with what is right here with us and know that it's possible to actually shift that tendency, to lessen that tendency, and to have the mind-heart be more filled with whatever it is that is of value to you, kindness, compassion, empathy, connection, harmony, ease. We start to see. We see the tendency of mind to go in certain directions. We know how to pull it back. And this is not a denying of the richness of our emotional life, but really seeing those paths that go in pretty much one direction, to confusion, to hurt, to conflict, to fear. So we recognize the need to work with this mind, this somewhat crazy mind. One of, again, my friends, actually my co-guiding teacher here, Philip Moffat, um, when I teach with him, we just finished a retreat with him where he again had our whole community at the retreat take an extra precept, an extra set of vows. Um, we often, we always on retreat, take the five precepts of non-harming, one of which is the noble silence that I spoke of earlier. Philip also uh, often asks his students to take the vow to renounce judging, fixing, and comparing for the week of the retreat. What would that be like? Renouncing, judging, fixing, and comparing. Take it up. I wish for you that that might be possible. But even to have the idea to hold it for an hour or a day, renounce, judging, fixing, and comparing, what kind of mind would that be? It would be a mind with much more ease and well-being. But as I said earlier, we have to be mindful to be able to know when the mind is heading in that direction. So this willingness to come back to breath and body, these simple um, experiences, and actually connect. What's happening? What am I feeling? What's going on here? Can I take a breath? Can I center? Can I steady? Can I stabilize? Um, this is huge. This is our biggest ally in this work. And then there are the more um, cultivating qualities. Here at Spirit Rock, we teach what we call the Brahma Viharas. These are these beautiful qualities that literally translates as divine abidings or 
best homes, divine, uh, abodes of the gods, of metta or loving kindness, compassion, karuna, mudita, sympathetic, empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. We can actually cultivate these qualities. There are practices for each one. We often give classes, day-longs, and retreats. The more we cultivate and steady and um, embody these qualities, the more they become the tendencies of mind rather than the ones that go into fantasy or contraction or avoidance or separation. So we can cultivate them. Equanimity is such a powerful balancer for our mind. But one of the things that I've seen is really um, valuable in countering this tendency to papancha, to fixing, to obsessing, and I'm back where I started the evening, is actually gratitude practice. That this tendency of mind to fix, to obsess, to want to control, to change, comes out of, as I said, a basic sense of a lack of trust or confidence. And that the more we deepen in a sense of gratitude, we open the doors to how we're actually held in a web of support. As difficult as life might be at different times for all of us, this is still a fundamental truth, that papancha comes out of dissatisfaction, Gratitude allows us to appreciate the blessings that we do have, all of us have. You've probably heard of uh, Robert Emmons. He's a professor at UC Davis who's kind of the gratitude guru. It's, he's made it his life work to teach and um, share teachings on gratitude. So he's written lots of books and articles. He has a website. He says about gratitude, it has two components. First, it's an affirmation of goodness. We affirm that there are good things in the world, gifts and benefits we've received. This doesn't mean that life is perfect. It doesn't ignore the complaints, burdens, and hassles. But when we look at life as a whole, gratitude encourages us to identify some amount of goodness in our life. The second part of gratitude is figuring out where that goodness comes from. We recognize the source of this goodness, of gratitude, of being outside of ourselves. It doesn't stem from anything we necessarily did ourselves in which we might take pride. We can appreciate positive traits in ourselves, but I think true gratitude involves a humble dependence on others. We acknowledge that other people or even higher powers, if you're of a spiritual mindset, gave us many gifts, big and small, to help us achieve the goodness that's in our lives. So it's kind of opening to this web of interdependence that is the truth of things. We don't exist in isolation. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the friendships we have, the community that we exist in, these are all the web that we can open to and appreciate. And he said, practicing gratitude, that they've done scientific studies that say it has these enormous benefits stronger immune system, lower blood pressure, higher level of positive emotions, more helpful, generous, and compassionate, less lonely and isolated. All these good things can come from this feeling and expression and practice of gratitude. We can cultivate this sense of gratitude. So really to look at you know, what are the tendencies of mind and what for us would be helpful practices 
that could balance and restore ourselves to ourselves. And the main thing is to know that it's possible. This is what the Buddha said again and again. It is possible. If it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But it is possible, so I do ask you to do it. It was radical in his time. It's still kind of radical today. But as the Dalai Lama said, the birthright of a human being is to discover and develop happiness in this very life. And this practice actually says that we can. And the Dalai Lama says it's necessary. It's not just a nice idea. If we want to live a fully human life, this is our practice to develop more contentment, more wisdom, more compassion, more equanimity. It's possible, even in these challenging times, even with everything that's going on in the world. As I said, this book is a testament to that. And I just finished reading an article in The New Yorker where David Remnick interviewed President Obama. If anyone's impacted by what's been going on, you'd have to think he was. It's an amazing interview. I recommend it. David asks, how did Obama speak with his two daughters about the election results, about the post-election reports of racial incidents? This is what he said. Obama said, what I say to them is that people are complicated. Societies and cultures are really complicated. This is not mathematics. This is biology and chemistry. These are living organisms and it's messy. And your job as a citizen and as a decent human being is to constantly affirm and lift up and fight for treating people with kindness and respect and understanding. And you should anticipate that at any given moment, there's going to be flare-ups of bigotry that you may have to confront, or maybe inside you, and you have to vanquish. And it doesn't stop. You don't get into a fetal position about it. You don't start worrying about apocalypse. You say, okay, where are the places where I can push to keep it moving forward? This is a strong mind and an open heart. And it just points to the possibility for all of us of opening, as I said, to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Just because there's suffering doesn't mean there can't also be joy and optimism and confidence and this capacity to open to things as they are not out of denial, out of clear seeing, but with this deep equanimity that allows the mind to be in balance. So this is the practice that we teach at Spirit Rock, what it offers. And it's not easy or simple. We can't just choose it, wish for it. It really is a deep practice of inner listening and cultivation. But as I keep saying, to know that it's possible, that we can train the mind and heart in these ways. But we have to look at the places where we feel limited or contracted. We can't just, you know, hope for the best. We really need to work with what is. And so these minds and hearts do get impacted. We do feel challenged. We can feel scared and lonely and limited. So we have to recognize that. That's where the work is. That's where we start. 
So I'm curious, and we'll just take a few moments now for questions or comments. And someone said there are microphones, so put your hand up if you're willing to speak or ask questions and know that you may, you'll certainly be heard online and may be filmed. What are the areas where you find this sense of limitation or you often try to fix, you know? Where does the mind go to? What is it that has that energy of fixing? And or what are the flights of papancha that you find you often have? Where does the mind go? And where do these experiences lead you? What, what happens when you get involved in this kind of thinking? And you can just answer those questions, but you might also have a response to what have you found that's been helpful? I've mentioned a few things, mindfulness, the Brahma Viharas, gratitude practice. What have you found? Where, where does your mind go? What's challenging for you? And what have you found maybe that works? Anyone? Yes, right here in the front. Thank you. Yeah, hold it close to your mouth. Um, you, um, you mentioned you mentioned the ego trying to reinforce itself and trying to keep you convinced that it exists. Mm -hmm. um, and at, right after that, you said something about um, the idea that you're better than others or that you're a lot worse than others. And um, that kind of that kind of like really gross like shame thing everyone's better than I am sort mm. of thing is like I think something that I'll, I and maybe a couple of other people <laughs> um, have uh, struggled with yeah and it 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 hit me that maybe the overblown ego of believing that you're somehow uh, somehow so much better than the people around you and that overblown shame are really not that different. Yes. I think that's true. That we can either move into contraction, as you say, the shame or the, the judging of inferior less than, but often people have that as an internal sense but overcompensate into the prideful or the arrogant stance and you're right they're both from very similar places the Dalai Lama once said something like all un unskillful emotions are based in fear and you can see the shame part is definitely fear-based what if people knew what I was really like or saw what I did or whatever but even these this sense of um, aggrandizement is also an overcompensation for some inherent sense of not okayness but we have to you know, put on a mask or a posture. And so our practice is to see both with compassion. You know, it's not that, you know, one is right and one is wrong, good, one is good and one is bad. They're both movements of the mind and heart that cause suffering. One can feel better because it has that expansiveness, but if, if one is really honest or in the quieter moments, I think that reality becomes clearer. So we don't want to believe the thoughts of shame also. Um, that's also a diminution of, of who we actually are. And in the teachings, people often um, you know, hear, because I was talking about ego, I think it was in one of the quotes, that 
you know, what Buddhism said, oh, you have to get rid of the ego, that it's uh, not, no self. And that's not exactly what the teachings say. The teachings talk about how we create a sense of self, and it's shaped by all of these forces. I talked a lot tonight about the force or the mental um, functioning of perception and how it shapes our sense of ourself. It's to recognize that we do that, um, and that has a reality to it. What we're, but what we're looking for is not to wipe that away, but to actually see it for what it is. It's a process, it's a functioning that we create, but most of us have created a lot of the times an unskillful sense of self, one that leads us into more suffering, whether it's through shame or anger or fear or judgment, whatever it is, or even if it's done through a sense of you know, being better than. We've conditioned this sense of self, and our practice is to see that clearly, not believe it as being solid or real, but actually work with it in a skillful way so that we actually have more experiences of kindness and compassion and openness, both directed inward towards ourselves, that's the place we need to begin, but also so it manifests in the world. So yes, basically yes, they're very similar. Thank you. Any other thoughts about these, these tendencies of mind, where you get stuck, what you might have found that was helpful? This one right there. Yeah, and the microphone will come from behind. I was listening to you when you were talking about how we train ourselves to have our own thought processes. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents were pretty unskillful. So I, I know when I was younger, it was so uncomfortable to be where I was mm. that I had to create a different world for myself yes. because you don't have a lot of power when you're young. That probably went on well into my late 30s. Yeah. And it took me a really long time to realize that I wasn't really there because the habit of fantasizing about life is going to be better yeah. or I, I never actually was home. Mm. And I'm a pretty recent meditator, but mm-hmm. I found that's really helped me to realize that I don't have to have that thought process and that I can create my own. But I, I, it's been a wonderful forgiveness process with my parents yes. because they were not nurtured, they were not top empathy, yes. and, and, and I've kind of fallen in love with them in an in a interesting and compassionate way. Beautiful. Yeah, and you know, the forgiveness for, for most of us, our upbringing was not, certainly not, not ideal for most of us, I think, but our parents are the product of their parents and their conditioning, you know, often even trying to do the best they can, but not really knowing how. And so that's a very common experience for many of us, that we indulged a fantasy world that was safer or more fulfilling than our reality, some people to the extreme of dissociation because their reality was so painful. And there was a a type of wisdom in that, as you said, to to learn how to live in the world, defend, uh, protect yourself, develop into an adult. But at some point, we realize it is a a fantasy world, and we actually want to be here in all its imperfections. And that's the thing, the fantasy world, you know, we can create it to be what we want, but it's not real. We can't live there. We live here in this body with all of the imperfection. And that, again, is the 
opportunity and the challenge, how to open to it all, not have some rarefied ideal that I'm only here if it's all good and lovely and everyone's nice to me. That's not going to work. Uh, again, I really recommend this book for practices and teachings on staying loving, compassionate, and open when things are difficult. I mean, uh, the Dalai Lama, people fall in love with him, right? If you've ever had a chance to be with him, and they say, what, what is it you do? What's your secret? And he says, it's no secret. I just treat everyone as a fellow human being. I look for what connects us rather than what separates us, and I try to meet them like that in their reality rather than uh, some ideal. And it, it makes everyone fall in love with him. It's amazing, just that simple act of connection. Well, thank you. I see we've come to the end of our time here. We usually take a moment just at the end to, to settle, let the words kind of land in the more the felt sense, and just to appreciate that you've chosen to spend a Monday night coming out to Spirit Rock, sitting with like-minded people, and hearing these teachings, these teachings that for 2,600 years have served to inspire and uplift and awaken countless millions of beings. And so we share in that tradition and lineage tonight and feel the blessing of being able to do that. We can perhaps express some gratitude of having that opportunity. And it's also very traditional to realize that these blessings can enrich our own lives and be a great source of uh, connection and well-being. But we can choose to offer the blessings and the merit of our lives and our practice that it may be a source of healing and connection, love and acceptance for all beings, human and non-human, on this planet. We dedicate the merit of our practice and our well-being and lives to the well-being, ease, happiness, and freedom from suffering of all beings everywhere. So again, thank you for coming to Spirit Rock tonight, for your attention. I wish you well on your journey. Hope that you come back again. Hope you feel welcome here. We love having you here. This is what makes Spirit Rock alive. If it's not for you, we're just some buildings out in West Marin. So come back and see us again. Blessings to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.